I, I was kind of floored that this had happened. Because I felt incapable of saying no, I kept thinking something else would end up being a barrier, and then it kept not being a barrier. And then all of a sudden, we're in Connecticut buying an engagement ring at the mall with $500 cash. This podcast is for every woman I know. Okay, not every single one. I know a select few, like there's three of you, who this doesn't apply to. Everyone else, lean in. Because today we're going to talk about boundaries and the truth around how so many of us were raised in a culture that said, as girls, our job was to be nice. Can you feel me? I mean, I know that I've said that to my own kid. I suck. It's just what I heard for so many years. It's our job as girls. We're supposed to be nice. And being nice means a laundry list of things that include saying what you think people want to hear, not being disagreeable, going with the flow. God forbid you say no, because everybody knows that the girl that says no, she's kind of a bitch. And we all just want to be accepted. So that means being nice. Often when we're on the other side of a situation, we can look back on it. And then, of course, we blame ourselves. Why didn't we just say no to that thing that we didn't want to do? It's so clear in hindsight that we should have stood up for ourselves. So why didn't so many of us say no when we really wanted to? Probably because no one ever gave us permission to. No one taught us how to say no. Our moms sure weren't setting that example. It was just how things are done. I keep thinking now as I raise my daughter, I sure hope that I'm showing her how to say no, how to say Absolutely not when that's what she's feeling, but only after I've said be nice. I mean, it's not easy to change this. I was born in the early 70s in San Francisco, so not too long after the summer of love. Both of my parents had moved to the West Coast from the East Coast, I don't know, in search of what freedom, and met each other and were very much a product of the times. Bonafide hippies, I don't know how else to put it, but they were bonafide hippies. So my parents met because they were roommates. And as was the time, everybody was sort of in roommate situations, I think partly just because it was the thing to do. It was kind of bohemian to, you know, put tapestries on the wall and have a whole bunch of people live in an apartment. Um, and so that's how their relationship started. And they ended up, you know, caretaking of a farm up in the, up in the wine country and living in a converted school bus and uh, this was very much the time for people to just kind of be doing their own fly-by-night thing. Just like the songs, like imagine the, the quintessential, you know, people dancing in the park and that was sort of where my parents were. And so I was born um, into that and my brother was born a couple of years later and my parents' marriage ended probably within a couple of years of that. So Sarah described life after her parents' divorce as somewhat chaotic. Her parents had shared custody. Um, she spent the weekends with her dad, but both parents had roommates. At one point, her mom and her brother and she were couch surfing. They had lived in a couple different apartments with friends. And then later, her mom and her mom's boyfriend, her dad and his girlfriend, and her grandmother 
and a surfer guy named Tim all live together. So there's a lot of people around all the time, and Sarah ends up taking care of her little brother a lot and just sort of fending for herself. They live a very bohemian lifestyle. So there's not a lot of stability, and Sarah said she just thought this was normal, since a lot of her friends' parents also had divorces. I think because my mom was a hippie, she sort of, it was sort of a bit of a point of pride. You know, it was just sort of like we were this ragtag group of kids, and we certainly gained some things from that sense of independence, and I've definitely felt uh, confident in myself, but maybe a little overconfident. Um, and I always did well in school, so I wasn't like flagged as a problem kid or anything like that. But I had my insecurities, like I was still sucking my thumb in fifth grade. So I'd say like around the edges, there was some anxiety there, uh, even though I was doing well in school and had friends. And then when I was almost 13, we moved across the country 3,000 miles from Northern California to Maine. Now this is a huge culture shock moving from one coast to the other. She goes from living this very laid back hippie lifestyle in a big city area of California to having a bit more structure, living in one house as a traditional family. She also just switched from a huge school to a very small one with just a couple hundred people in the whole school. But she seems to be doing fine. She describes really liking school and not being lost in the crowd anymore. She's really popular. She's a cool girl from California. She makes good grades. She's a cheerleader and she has a lot of friends. She really likes being in Maine. So there's a senior boy at the high school that's been dating a friend of hers and they break up. He then turns his attention to Sarah. She's a freshman and she's 14 years old. Her parents didn't realize how old he is. In fact, I don't know that she did at first. He'd been held back a grade, so he's actually 19 at this point. All of this seemed really normal at the time. Everyone around her is dating. There wasn't a lot to do in the small town. She admits that she'd kind of built up an air of confidence. So she's guessing she kind of might have played down her relationship with this guy to her parents as well. He did become really possessive and manipulative and controlling. I had been cheerleader and was on the squad and thought that was really fun. It was like the only sport that I was involved in. And um, after we had been dating for a while, he, he was like, I don't want you doing that anymore. It's not that he didn't want me to have friends, but he wanted to be in charge of my interactions with my friends. I think that there was a piece of power that I gave away to him that I didn't know that I was doing it at the time, but like once I had given it away, it was really hard to get back. I basically just kept sort of acquiescing to his wishes and it became a really bad habit. And then once I was in the habit of doing it, it was really hard to pull back from that and assert my own who I was. And so I, I even though I had been sort of a confident, outspoken young girl, I really just lost my voice very quickly in the relationship with him and to the point where my, my friends did notice and or like he would get upset and then I would get upset and I didn't even know what you're upset about but he would be whatever that it was he wanted to control how I looked and not draw the attention of other boys because he was so jealous I felt like he wanted to keep me all to himself. And I had no preparation for this you know there was no teen dating education in the 80s and um it was also sort of like everybody else was everybody else was like getting a boyfriend and starting to date and you know it just seemed like a normal thing to do and 
you know, there also wasn't a lot to do in the town where I grew up. There was not a lot going on in East, East, East Jesus, Maine, or whatever we <laughs> called it at the time. Um, Sarah told me that her parents didn't love their relationship, but they also just weren't prepared for what was coming. They were caught off guard. They tried to put rules into place, but it was too little, too late. And Sarah says they probably didn't think it was going to get as serious as it did. When her parents caught her alone with him, though, they grounded her for a month. It's almost like I grew these two different parts of me where one of them was in allegiance to him because it was just like this really bad habit I couldn't break of being in allegiance to him. And then the other part of me was like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into and how the heck am I going to get out of this, right? And those two voices were sort of battling themselves out in my mind. And so a large part of me, that part of me anyway, was relieved that I was like, oh, great, I'm going to get a break. Sarah had gotten her permit to drive and she had a job. But since her boyfriend had a car, he would just show up at her work or at school. He was really upset that they couldn't see each other. He repeatedly says he can't stay away from her and he's really angry that she's grounded. He had been talking to her about getting married. My grandmother had given me you know, a, a significant in my world sum of money to be able to go to college. And I must have mentioned that this money was sitting in this joint bank account because his hot idea was that we would run away together. It was sort of like I was just on this train of not being able to say no. And I, I, you know, had grown up not having a ton of boundaries where no one explicitly taught me to check in with myself and, um, you know, or set a boundary or say no and let somebody else's feelings be theirs. So I was all sort of like codependent in my relationship with him. And I, I was like, okay, not ever thinking really that it would actually work or happen. But um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I just was like okay, I, I, I guess that could work. And, you know, then the adventurous side of me was like, well, that would be wild. So in the middle of the night on a snowy March evening, I put a bunch of my stuff into garbage bags and pushed them out the window into the snowbank. And at some point in the night, he drove by and picked them up. And that morning, I packed an extra bag, my pillow on top and other stuff sort of hidden beneath it. And I went, had breakfast and went to go get on the school bus. And my mom, who was five months pregnant at the time with my little sister, was like, what do you, what do you have that bag for? What's the pillow for? And I was like, oh, we're doing skits in English class. By this, by this time, I was pretty good at telling stories. And then I took the bus to school and got off the bus and didn't go into the building and walked off campus and got into his car and we drove to the bank. And now we're gonna pause Sarah's story for less than two minutes and hear a message from our first Gardenia Project sponsor. Raise your hand if you can't even deal with watching the news and it feels like you're constantly absorbing all the pain and stress of the world around you. I feel like there should be a club. Maybe I'll start it for those of us who get completely wound up, furiously angry, or even cry. I might've done this on occasion. When we experience all the crazy stuff going on around us. This is called being empathic highly empathic. It's a great thing to have empathy until it's not. 
My dear friend, Jennifer Moore, is a modern-day fairy godmother for highly sensitive, empathic women, including me. She's an intuitive mentor, an accredited EFT trainer, and the author of the amazing book, Empathic Mastery, which I got to preview and is coming out this spring. Jennifer is both a seasoned healer and a successful entrepreneur. She blends intuitive skills with common sense practicality to help you overcome negativity and manifest your dreams. She's been cracking the code on how to go from being a hot mess to becoming a calm, confident success. On January 24th, 2019, Jennifer is running a special one-hour workshop over at the Wellness Universe called The Empathic Entrepreneur's Secrets to Success. If you're a highly sensitive and struggling to thrive as an entrepreneur, this is the support you need. If you're listening to this after the date, you can still sign up to get the replay for free. Go to empathsecrets.com to register or just click on the link in the podcast description. Check out the webinar and learn how to leverage your empathic abilities to help you succeed. And now back to Sarah's story. So at this point I am 15 and my boyfriend is 20 and we drive to the bank. Well, first we had to drive to the DMV because I had my permit, but I didn't have my driver's license. Sky is smart. He knows that she's going to need a real ID to get the money from the bank. So he first drives her to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they give her an ID. Then they go back to the bank and they come up with an elaborate story about why they need this cash. The bank doesn't even have $12,000 in cash, but somehow they manage to get half of it and a cashier's check for the rest. They then go to a second bank where she has a savings account. They use the same story and they cash the check for the other $6,000. They now have a duffel bag with $12,000 and they drive south. I, I was kind of floored that this had happened, that we actually ended up with this money because I didn't think... I don't even know what made me think it would be possible in the first place, but then the fact that we actually ended up with all of this money, um, I, I kept, because I felt incapable of saying no, I kept thinking something else would end up being a barrier, and then it kept not being a barrier. And then all of a sudden we're in Connecticut buying an engagement ring at the mall with $500 cash you know, so that he can claim me more. And then we're driving further south and selling his car to get another car because we're like fugitives now and have have left the state. At some point that night, I remember sort of like losing it, like breaking down and being really sad and thinking like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like my family's gotta be freaking out by now. And I just, what in the heck am I doing? This is insane. And so I was crying and like so upset. And then somehow when push came to shove, when he was like, because he, he kept saying all along, like, are you sure? But I was in such a habit of like acquiescing to him and just telling him what he wanted to hear that it kept coming out of my mouth. Yeah, I'm sure. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. There was this allure of freedom and not really thinking through the longer term ramifications of that because, because I was 15. So they do what any young kids would do. They go to Disney World. I mean, that really tugged at my heartstrings. They're so young and they just want to go on vacation. They go to Epcot, they get a beach bungalow, they have fun and weeks go by and suddenly they realize they're gonna run out of money if they keep up this lifestyle. 
So they go back to Virginia and they get a place to live. He gets a job and she applies to be a nanny. She tells them she's 18 and she just hopes they won't check her ID, which they don't, and she gets the job. And we bought me a car and sort of settled into, quote, what might be a normal life for somebody who wasn't 15, where I just had this job and he had his job and we had our little home, which we got to go out and, you know, buy everything we needed for. But then by then, our the money was really gone. So the, the denial started to get sort of chinks in it. Um, it got to be closer to my birthday. My sister was due to be born not that long after my birthday. Um, and I just couldn't stop thinking about my family. And he remained very controlling, like even more so, like no bathing suits at the beach. And why are you walking like that? And why did you talk to that store clerk that way? Like, even though he had succeeded in pulling me away from my family and gaining like really control over me, it wasn't enough. Like he just really wanted to control my every move and was still so jealous. I came across a flyer for the National Runaway Switchboard. It's a service where you can call and they will contact your family and they will patch you through on a phone call so that you can contact your family without um, worry about disclosing your location. How long at this point, how long have you been gone? About three months. Okay. And no phone call, no contact? No contact. Okay. So nope. you, you call this national hotline? I call the national hot, hotline and was patched through and spoke to my mom and the one thing she said that stuck in my mind that I was like oh she said you are basically a 16 year old housewife and I had not been raised to be a 16 year old housewife and it like shook me to my core that I was like oh my gosh she's right I am and it's horrible look away like oh I can't have this this is awful At this point, they've been gone for about three months. Sarah's mom is wise enough to keep her talking on the phone that day. Her mom is pregnant, and Sarah really wants to come home to see her baby sister be born. Her mom also lets her know that there's still money left in the account for her college tuition, and she's not going to get any of that if she doesn't come home. Sarah isn't happy in this relationship. She really does want to come home, but she still doesn't know how to stand up for herself. She starts to call her mom occasionally. So Sarah visits her mom and then realizes that she does want to go home for good. I just went back to Virginia and said, I'm going home. I want to go to school and this isn't really working for me. And, and I, I still couldn't draw a hard line in the sand. It was like a soft line of like, if you want to come with me, you can. But I'm not staying. And I thought for sure he wouldn't, he wouldn't come with me, but he did. So it was done in phases of finally being able to speak up for myself and speak my truth. Uh, we packed up everything and drove back to Maine. She had gotten her GED when she was in Virginia, so she decides not to return to high school. She gets a job at a bookstore and starts applying for college, and it's during that time that she finds out that she was first in her class. Sarah told me that she really remembers feeling regret about the realization of what she gave up. Like, I don't know what finally pushed me over the edge. Like, it had just been such a long time coming at that point. And I also had been doing some counseling with my mom. And 
I remember telling her at one point, she was just like, I can't believe you think you're gonna marry this guy. And I was like, oh God, seriously? Like, I'm totally not gonna marry him. I'm just trying to figure out how to get out of it. Like, I just couldn't figure out how to say the words and then let it be. Like, I was so wrapped into his emotional state. I was just so codependent that I couldn't imagine having enough distance to be able to just be like, nope, I'm done. And then one day it happened. And he said, why don't you just give me my ring back? And so I took the ring off my hand and I set it in his and I just looked him right in the face and I was like, okay, then I'm done. And then he had a meltdown and it was all ugly, but I was completely done at that point. You know, I told him that you, you, what, your feelings are your feelings. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm really done. But what's interesting to me is what you what you got from this and, and what you do for work now was largely um, inspired by mm -hmm. this situation. So talk to me yeah. about, you went to college and you ended up, I want you to talk about the field of work that you're mm -hmm. in and, and what you do now. Yep, I ended up becoming a social worker and a parent educator because I could see so clearly how some, there were some gaps in my education as a young person or how um, having certain skills modeled for me or taught to me around communication and boundaries and emotional intelligence and understanding that we all have feelings but we don't have to be um, you know taking care of each other's feelings and that that's part of having good boundaries um, that none of that was really taught to me and I feel like it would have served me well in that situation to have those skills and, and also a lot of the parenting practices that people utilize are not supportive of good boundaries. You know, like we overpower children, we coerce them, we manipulate them. And while it might be convenient in the moment, that's not the best message to be sending to little kids. My real goal is to create a world where children's brains are developing and growing in the most integrated and helpful way. So at some point, in my work as a social worker, I learned about the ACEs study. In 1995, a study began, and it followed people for 15 years. It studied the adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, in other words, childhood trauma, and how these experiences can affect the way we interact with the world and ultimately our health. The CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences study uncovered a stunning link between childhood trauma and the chronic diseases that people develop as adults, as well as social and emotional problems. This includes heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, and many autoimmune diseases, as well as depression, violence, and being a victim of violence, as well as suicide. They've linked that something that happened to you as a child can land you in the hospital as a 50-year-old. So it was interesting to me. My parents divorced when I was about five. This event happened when I was about 15. And then 10 years later, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which kind of came out of the blue. I was completely thrown off by it because I was young and healthy and um, had no cancer in my family history. But then when I learned about the ACEs study not that long after that, even just experiencing adversity as a child can affect how prone you are to developing things like cancer and heart disease, high blood pressure. And I didn't know that. 
and then when I when I learned about it, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It's like classic progression there. And I also thought it was sort of interesting. My illness was in my throat when I had had such a hard time finding my voice. There are things that happen in our lives that may seem like just something to get on the other side of. They're tough, but that's life, right? The thing that I learned while listening to Sarah and reading the ACEs study is that these things that happened in our life do have impact. For some people, that impact is huge and it can directly affect our health. For Sarah, she had some big events that now looking back on, she can see led to the choices she made. In her case, not having the boundaries to just say no. As well as the direct effect on her health when she got older and got thyroid cancer. A cancer of all places for Sarah, in her throat. The very place in her body that she didn't use in the way she could have. And yet, Sarah learned this lesson and it's totally changed who she is today. I know that for many women in our patriarchal culture, they don't learn this lesson at 15. And so I feel so grateful for that, that I basically never put up with any bullshit in a relationship ever again. I don't know if I can say bullshit on here, but, um, <laughs> you can. okay. I, I just didn't like my, I, my boundary around other people's emotional state just solidified in a way that I really needed it to. And I feel very grateful for that because I know that for some people they don't learn that lesson and then it becomes a chronic problem and that's scary. That scares me. It scares me that I might not have learned that lesson for a longer period of time. And, you know, I I guess that was it. Yeah, way to find a silver lining. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm like, holy moly. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, you're welcome. Sarah learned her lesson the hard way, but at a young age, and it stuck. Me? Well, I didn't get the messages clearly. Even though there were plenty of times that should have hit me over the head, I still wanted to be a nice girl, so I kept letting people push my boundaries. I'm better now at listening to my gut than ever before, but still. How about you? Is there something tugging at you somewhere deep down that's telling you to say no? Listening to that voice? That is the first step toward being true to yourself, toward being whole. So I'm raising my cup of tea in a toast to all of us that are still working on it. This podcast was produced by the fantastic Stephanie Cohn, and the theme music is brought to you by Keith Kenneth of Unseen Music. A huge thank you to all of you for listening. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can do so in the form of a small monthly donation that might buy me a cup of coffee or, you know, pay me to keep my butt in this chair. You can do that over on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Just look up the Gardenia Project. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Well, I mean, I won't see you. You'll hear me. The ending is, it's always tricky. Thanks, guys.